So now imagine for a second, you're in the room, in the conference room, locked door, watching videos by yourself, companies burning down, and you're thinking of solutions that every major stakeholder thinks is wrong. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, I, that was a big decision. Should we just shut it down or should we keep it going and do other things? That's Ryan Caldbeck of Circle Up. This week, we have part one of the conversation with Ryan, and part two is coming up next week. Even more exciting, Ryan is also speaking at the Lean Startup Conference this week in San Francisco. Tickets to the conference are still available at leanstartup.co. Hi, and welcome back to the Lean Startup Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Guest, otherwise known as Guest and I'm Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at the custom eyeglasses startup Topology Eyewear here in San Francisco. And today's episode is a deep dive into a topic that is not talked about enough in Silicon Valley or the business world. And it's a topic that's not only difficult to talk about, but in fact, talking about it might be fundamentally disincentivized. And yet, this is potentially to the detriment of both businesses and the individuals that work at those businesses. And the topic is, what is it like, or what is it really like to lead a team through a major pivot? And our guest for this discussion is someone that's really leading the charge for bringing this topic into the limelight. He is Ryan Coldbeck. He's the founder and CEO of Circle Up. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So pivot, it, it sounds like such a graceful and effortless thing, right? Like a, a ballerina gliding through a pillarette and landing to great applause. Is that it? Is that what it's like? <laughs> it is the opposite of that. But I, I, I do agree that uh, it sounds nice. Uh, it's, it sounds almost planned um, and, and elegant. Uh, I think the reality is, uh, at least in my experience, was uh, quite candidly a, a living hell. I live in hell. Okay, well, I'm keen to get straight into that and, and, and learn about that experience. But just so that everyone has enough context for the discussion, could you give us a quick brief radio edit on your background and also the genesis of Circle Up and, and where you were before this pivot? Sure. So Circle Up is an investment platform powered by technology. Effectively, we built a technology that we call Helio, which goes out into the world, finds and evaluates consumer companies then we invest either equity or credit into those companies. My background uh, before starting Circle Up seven years ago was in consumer-focused private equity. So I used to invest into consumer companies, call it 10 to 100 million in revenue. And what I saw is that there's hundreds of investors in that industry that love investing in the space, uh, but almost none of them that will invest below 10 or $15 million in revenue. And it's despite the fact that the returns historically have been fantastic, the problem is that the cost to find and evaluate the companies is just way too high. Meaning in tech, you've got geographic density. San Francisco, New York, you also have infrastructure uh, like the Lean Startup, but also TechCrunch, Y Combinator that help investors and companies connect very efficiently. Uh, in consumer, meaning food, beverage, personal care, pet products, things like that, uh, none of that exists. Um, the companies are just as likely to be in Florida or Texas as they are California or New York. So we had a thesis that you could use technology to lower the cost to find and evaluate the companies, thus expanding uh, the opportunity to invest in those companies. Um, that was the, the original thesis. Our application on how we did that has uh, changed dramatically over time. Excellent. And there's some great brand names that you've invested in and empowered that, that people will probably know and love. I know that uh, my toddler's screaming his head off in the next room because he wasn't quite finished with his halo top, which is one of, <laughs> one of your brands, right? It is. Yeah. So um, a little bit of background. When we started uh, Circle Up uh, in 2012, it was a marketplace. Um, so we would list consumer companies, then investors would come and invest into those companies. And we worked with a number of just phenomenal companies as a marketplace. Halo Top was one of them. Beyond Meat was another. Uh, Super Goop, uh, uh, you know, Yasso Yogurt, a number of uh, really, really fantastic companies. Um, since uh, 2016 or so, we pivoted away from that marketplace model um, and we have our own internal funds that invest into the companies. Gotcha. And in addition to being a successful in investor, both before uh, Circle Up and during Circle Up, um, I see that you've raised over 200 million 
uh, as the founder and CEO of, of Circle Up. Well, that's what Crunchbase tells us anyway. Uh, and you seem to be quite the master of the tweet storm as well, I see. <laughs> Yeah, so the the uh, the funding um, it's it's a bit tricky to be frank because there's money that goes on to um, our balance sheets. So we've raised money from just fantastic VC investors um, like Union Square Ventures, Canaan Partners, Google Ventures, um, Rose Park, which is Clint Christensen's fund. Um, separate from that, we have also raised money to invest into uh, companies. So we recently announced, I think this is what you might be referring to, we recently announced a $200 million uh, credit fund. Um, separate from that, we've raised a $125 million VC equity fund um, from some great institutional LPs like Tomasic and Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, TPG, a uh, large private equity firm, um, and a number of other great institutional LPs. Wonderful. So back in April, you lit up the Twitter sphere with a, a tweet storm about some of your own experiences of a, a major pivot that you'd executed, not then, but I think some years before. Um, was that the first time that you'd told this story publicly? Yes. Yeah, I'd never told it publicly, and, and candidly, we haven't really even talked about it that much internally since we did it, um, and it, it felt like it was the right time. Okay, and so tell us about this story then of, of your pivot um, sometime before with Circle Up. Sure. So um, it's, a, it's a fairly lengthy um, story, so I'll start and, and then we can go back and forth. Um, we, the pivot began in early <clears throat> 2016. Um, we had just raised our Series C uh, in uh, Q4 of 2015, um, and the business up to the end of 2015 and very, very early 2016 was, was doing pretty well on a lot of dimensions. Most marketplaces, which is what Circle Up was, um, get valued and get measured, um, at first at least, on um, GMV, gross merchandise value, uh, as, a, as a you know, key metric. And our GMV was accelerating. Um, the, the growth rate, very specifically, was accelerating. Um, I think from our Series B to our Series C, the growth rate actually doubled. Uh, that's great. Um, what it hid was that that metric um, was kind of masking some fundamental issues with, with the business. Um, when we uh, uh, you know, started maybe midway through Q2 or early Q2 of uh, 2016, uh, the GMV uh, began to go down. Not only did the growth not continue, it, it actually declined pretty meaningfully. And I think what began to be exposed was that there was just a fundamental issue with the, the product and the offering that, that we were giving. It wasn't solving uh, a need in a way that was drawing customers back, in this case, investors back to the platform. Um, and I can give more detail on kind of the, the core issues with the product and the business, but um, we realized that there was something major wrong with the business. It wasn't, you know, going from a 10% growth rate to a 7% growth rate. It was going from an 8% monthly growth rate to a negative, you know, 50% growth rate. I mean, right. it, was, it was pretty dramatic. So could you just break <clears throat> down for us, for anyone that's not familiar, what is GMV uh, and why is that particular metric so useful to a marketplace <clears throat> business? Sure. So um, GMV, uh, effectively gross merchandise values or gross market value, gross market volume, depending on who you ask. It, it's different kind of ways to say the same thing, which is the amount of transactions in dollar form that occur on that platform. So you and I start a marketplace called eBay. We sell $1,000 worth of stuff on that marketplace. Uh, we have 1000 in one day. That's $1,000 of GMV. We then uh, charge a commission on that GMV. The commission we might charge is, let's say, 10%. Um, that means we got $100 of revenue. So it's $1,000 in GMV, $100 in revenue. Um, GMV kind of across marketplaces has been um, a metric that a lot of folks look at. Um, it can also be gamed um, and, you know, it can look uh, really sexy in the case of a lot of car marketplaces, meaning selling cars. Um, but you and I could start a car marketplace tomorrow and charge nothing and we will dominate the car industry. Um, it tends to be a uh, not a very sticky place uh, for a marketplace because 
you buy a car every five years, every 10 years. So you tend to shop around on price a lot, as an example. Mm. In our case, um, that was the metric that the board and we all aligned on to be most important, and we were willing to do what it took to drive uh, GMV. And it turns out that our actions and uh, the growth of the GMV was really masking some just fundamental issues we had with our value proposition and the product. Um, and those kind of came home to roost in early 2016. I saw that you wrote uh, somewhere in one of your articles that that metric was going up and to the right, but it wasn't necessarily clear to you why that was. And and you yeah. had some discomfort yourself that like, well, everything looks great, but I'm not sure. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, that's uh, it's funny. I just had a shiver in my body. Uh, physically, I just shivered because I, I remember how painful um, and how scary that was because you know, you're in a room and there's investors that are celebrating and there's teammates that are celebrating and you have no idea what to do again next month to replicate that. Um, we hadn't found a growth engine. Uh, and that was really, really scary. Um, you know, I, I would go home at night and just like honestly have cold sweats because I, I couldn't I, I try to tell everyone, I mean, we, we talked about it as a board, we talked about it as a team, the importance of trying to identify the levers. And I remember very clearly, one of the board members, one of our major investors said something to the effect of the demonstration of a great marketplace is when it grows for reasons that you don't understand. That may be true, but it certainly didn't feel true at the time. Mm. Um, and in our case, I, I worried that there were a lot of months of growth that were a fluke or, or were being driven by something that we didn't understand um, and might have been counterproductive. And it turns out that we didn't understand it and it was counterproductive. Um, so, you know, we, um, we tried a lot of different methods to replicate growth um, and to improve growth. And the things that we tried didn't work. Um, yet we would see growth, you know. Um, and and that it may sound like a really nice problem from some other companies. I assure you, it was extremely painful to deal with because we felt like it was a house of cards in some ways, um, and and that was a really scary thing. Yeah. So everyone's partying and celebrating your success, and you're feeling like you're waiting for the music to stop. That's right. That's right. And by the way, then you have people that know marketplaces extremely well saying this is, this is normal. It, it grows for reasons you can't understand, which by the way, I believe to be true in some instances, right? So when marketplaces truly have product market fits, they scale in part because of the network effects of the marketplace. And those aren't always attributable to specific growth initiatives. I believe that to be true, but I also believe to be true that some of the growth initiatives should actually have an impact. And that was what was not happening. Right. Gotcha. And so do you think it was that the GMV was the, the wrong metric or was the signal that compelled you to think there was a problem more of an instinctive problem that you just didn't understand it? Or, or, or you mentioned that you were running some tests to check that you could replicate the success, but when they didn't, that, that was really the, the telling sign. Yeah, we, we ran um, a lot of growth initiatives. A lot of growth initiatives. Um, we can go through them, but <clears throat> related to the product, sales, marketing, comms, PR, everything. And um, we did not find consistent, scalable levers that would help. Um, found some unscalable ones that would help here and there, but nothing that gave me excitement to be a Series C company, which is what we were. Uh, and that's rare. Usually they get sniffed out and identified earlier on. <clears throat> um, you know, and at, at the point where we had the pivot, we had had, I don't know exactly, but, you know, call it 20 some odd months of consistent growth. Um, you know, very, very steady. So it's hard to say, well, that can't be a fluke. You know, 20 months of growth in a row is a fluke. Um, but yet we didn't identify the reasons why it was growing or the levers that we could twist. So usually when you raise a series C, someone gives you, you know, in our case, $30 million, it's $30 million to invest into the levers to, as a lot of VCs say, pour gasoline on the fire. We didn't know where the fire was. Right. Mm. So 
the things that we were doing, you couldn't put any more fire, you couldn't, couldn't put any more gasoline on uh, in order to, to juice the, uh, the performance. And that was a, a very scary thing. And how many people were in on the problem and in on your concerns? Was it the whole team or something you were keeping to yourself? The company, the company was aware of the importance of, we talked openly with the board and the company about um, the fears that I just explained, including the fears of, have we really identified the growth initiatives? Um, so that, that was something we talked openly about. I don't, not sure. It's just a long time ago. So I'm not sure how much I, I said like, Hey, I'm not, sleeping, um, um, waking up in cold sweats, but I absolutely talked about the importance of finding that stuff and saying, look, we, we haven't found it yet. Um, I remember, you know, some big investors, um, that we worked with <clears throat> would talk about like, Hey, like, you know, this is, this is what happens. You guys are on a streak now of, of 20 some odd months of consecutive growth. It's because you found product market fit. This is working and it may not feel like it yet, but this is working. Um, and, and I don't think we, maybe I should have done a better job of stressing, look, here are the 30 initiatives we've done. They haven't worked. So something might be working, but we don't know what it is. Um, so that was scary. Mm. And, and you've mentioned in the past that you had some hard meetings and conflicts with some of your investors. Was that about understanding and recognition of the the true problem that you did have or at that point you already decided that you wanted to pivot and you were trying to 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 get everyone on board with your plans to pivot yeah so um i'm not sure which uh which tweets um you're, you're referring to but i i've talked before about having um challenges on twitter with um uh, an investor specifically. Um, there's one investor that participated um, for us in our uh, our Series C who is uh, who, who ended up not being a productive um, uh, member of the Circle Up team. Um, since then, um, they are no longer a part of this journey, um, and that's something that that we and the board work to to help um, facilitate in some ways. Um, I I think. The other conversations we've had with the board that have been difficult are much more normal um, in that, you know, we're seven years into a journey. So depending upon the investor, you know, when you're two, three, four years in with a, a specific investor, you're going to run up against topics that you may not agree on. I think that that's healthy. I think friction helps create some fire in some ways, and that's a good thing. Um, and so. I think if you ask the board, uh, we have a, a really productive and constructive relationship. Um, but there are absolutely times, and this pivot was one, where we disagreed. Um, the board initially did not agree that we should pivot. Um, they they thought that you know we were acting too quickly on that, and that we we should give it another. I don't remember, you know, a couple of years kind of thing. Um, and so it took a couple board member board meetings, excuse me, over the course of I think maybe like six months or so, um, in order to convince the board that uh, it, it, we needed to pivot the business meaningfully. Um, and that those six months were really hard because it 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 didn't feel like I was living my authentic self or we were living our authentic self. You know, uh, both trying to motivate the team to keep going yet in the we also have this thought like, I don't think this is working. We should, we should change. Um, and that was a really difficult period because of that. Mm. I mean, it sounds like a, a really interesting scenario because I think a lot of listeners, particularly that work in startups themselves have probably been in the, in the situation where they're trying to convince investors that they do have product market fit and investors are saying, actually you, you don't. In this case, it's, it was almost reversed that people are trying to ally your concerns by saying, don't worry, you're good. You've got great growth. Just, just let it out right out. And, and you're the one advocating that you, you think that there's a problem there. Yeah, in some ways. And, you know, this is probably an instance where I wish our board was with me on the call so they could probably provide some more color. Let's be clear. Um, they are fantastic investors. They are really good at what they do. Um, part of, I think, the job of the board, um, a good one, is to help reassure the CEO. Um, and, and to help like inject some confidence because this is a lonely, difficult job. I think there was some of that. 
I also think that there was some of, hey, yes, you haven't figured out the exact right levers yet. Look at the 10-year vision here. Don't look at this six-month period. Look at the 10-year vision. This, this, there's a huge problem to solve here, and this marketplace is going to solve that problem. Take a longer-term view here. Um, and by the way, they might be right. Right, like you know, I I might have been wrong to pivot it um, when we did. Uh, they were not; they didn't have their heads in the sand. Um, that's not what I'm trying to say. I think they just had a different perspective looking at the same data. Mm. So you had a marketplace of uh, consumer brands and an investor community that you're making those connections to enable uh, those investments that are otherwise difficult to, to be made. Yep. And at this point, you, you have grave concerns that the business model isn't really working. So you're thinking, okay, we need to, to pivot to something else. So yep. how did you uh, evaluate, what were some of the options and how did you evaluate the options that you had of what to pivot to? Yeah, it's funny. I, was, um, I just chuckled a little bit because my mind was not that clear. I mean, what you just said, like, what you just said there, the way you described it is, is the way I wish I had talked about it, the way I wish I had evaluated it. Um, what are my options? What are, you know, like, just kind of like systematically going through it. The really um, painful component for me, or one of the really painful components of the, the, the pivot was how many months I spent paralyzed with fear. And just really unsure of what to do, um, and, and it's not something that I've ever experienced before in my life. Um, I, I pride myself on being able to make difficult decisions um, and, and move forward, and, and have a pretty high velocity in terms of making decisions. Um, and and maybe uh, you know because I take so much pride in that, I was less prepared for this. I'm not sure, but uh, the way you just described it. Um, was not my experience. Um, I, you know, I think I might have talked about this on, on on Twitter a little bit. Like, there were more than a few times. I'm not proud to say this. I locked myself in a conference room and watched YouTube videos, um, and it's just like I, I didn't know what to do. Of course, I I was terrified, mm. um, and uh, I regret that for myself. I regret that for our investors, for our. Team members here at Circle Up. I regret that for everyone involved. Um, it wasn't because I wasn't working hard. It was because I, I didn't know how to fix it. One of the failures I think that I had during that journey, um, during that period, was I wasn't reaching out to other people to to talk to them. I mean, maybe if you and I had talked, you would have asked me that question. And I'm sure to a lot of listeners, it sounds like an obvious question, but that would have shed light on my situation. Being able to talk to a management coach, I didn't go to a management coach at that time. Um, being able to meet with other CEOs who were willing to be vulnerable would have helped. There could have been a lot of things that would have been productive for me to get outside of my own head because I was just spinning in my own head. So first, I want to, before I talk about some of the um, things I did do, I want to say a lot about like what I didn't do. and that made the situation worse. My, me locking myself in a room and in my own head, um, figuratively and literally, uh, made everything worse. And I wish I'd done a better job of meeting with folks outside of Circle Up and inside Circle Up. Um, I think, I don't know exactly what the, the core impetus was, but um, it, it might have been that we were moving offices um, to a newer, much larger office, um, the one I'm sitting in today. And this office is about three times the size of the old office. So imagine for a second, we're going through a pivot. I have no idea what to do with the business. And we just signed a three-year lease on a, you know, office that's three times the size. So I remember um, coming over to this office and, and it was empty because we were a couple months away from moving in um, and just kind of like, you know, reinforcing in myself, like, gosh, this feels like I'm in over my head. I don't know what to do here. And somehow I started a conversation with my co-founder um, and we locked ourselves in a room uh, in the new office and, uh, 
basically built a, uh, a Google Doc. Um, I, I put it truly unedited onto that, uh, that, that tweet storm you referenced before. Um, and I just listed out some of the strengths and weaknesses that we had as a company. Um, no one gave me that framework. There's got to be better frameworks on there. But it was something to just move the ball forward. My, I now have a management coach that I've been going to the last couple of years. His name is Ed Batista. He's phenomenal. And he has an expression, um, which is you can't drive a parked car. That just getting momentum in the car helps to move it in the direction you want to, but you first need some momentum. And we were, I was, excuse me, I was a parked car in my head. I, I was sitting there watching cat videos on YouTube. Um, and I don't mean that as a joke. It was really painful. Um, <clears throat> because I'm sitting there, my, you know, the, the, the company is burning down and I, the only thing I can do is lock myself in a room and watch a video. Um, and so this exercise was a way to start the car in my head to way to get my mind just to move in a direction. Um, and so we started listing out some of the strengths and weaknesses that we thought we had as a company that helped us to give me a little bit of confidence. Wow. There actually are some interesting things that we have here. I think we have an awesome team. I think we have, we, I know we have some money in the bank at that point. We had like $25 million in the bank. Um, we have some other things that were assets. I don't know what they're assets for. I have no idea what we're going to do with these assets, but they're assets. And that began to like be a little bit of a shot of adrenaline for me. Okay, where can we go with these assets now? How could we begin to kind of play around with this? I, I like to be resourceful. Um, I really like to be resourceful. And uh, this kind of began to scratch that part of my brain and, and personality. How could we use these assets to build something either different or totally new? I didn't know, but that was the start of that conversation. Mm. And so um, was there one clear answer that you, you thought sounded the, the right next direction or were there a few options that you evaluated? <clears throat> it's a good question. Um, first, there was um, uh, not a clear answer at all of whether we keep the marketplace open and do something else or just completely shut it down. And I would say even to this day, we have some big investors who disagree with the decision that they wish that we had kept open the, uh, the marketplace and some team members, by the way, like some team members, some customers, and some investors who all believe that that was the wrong decision. Um, so now imagine for a second, you're in the room, in the conference room, locked door, watching videos by yourself, companies burning down, and you're thinking of solutions that every major stakeholder thinks is wrong. It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I, that was a big decision. Should we just shut it down or should we keep it going and do other things? Um, within the other things bucket, you know, there were some other concepts that we were exploring. Um, I think I felt be, after kind of evaluating them, I felt a lot of conviction around the, um, the direction we decided on. Um, but the biggest pain point, the biggest disagreement with all of the stakeholders and within ourselves was whether to keep the marketplace open at all. Sounds like an especially difficult position to be in for you personally, because from what I'm hearing, I can imagine that the very, some of the very things that should have been bringing you joy were, were actually bringing you dread in terms of like the the 20 months of growth, the brand new shiny office, all these things that should be celebrated. And you've got this nagging feeling of, of dread and panic in, in, in the back of your head, perhaps. Could you talk a little bit more about how that felt to you personally, both in, in the office on work time and, and outside of the office? Like how did this leak into your personal life and how did it affect you personally, Ryan, in, in, in a bigger sense? You know, I, I think... Um... I think being a, a founder, I think being a CEO and a founder is a, um, I think I'm very fortunate to be able to have that job. Um, I think it's a really privileged role. Um, I think that there's a lot of amazing things about being able to sit in this seat. Um, and I think that there's so many people in our country and beyond um, who have much, much more difficult lives um, and situations. 
having said all that, from a mental health standpoint, I think it is uh, a really difficult job. I think it's really difficult for a few different reasons. Um, one of which is the contrast between how it is glorified uh, in the world and the actual experience, um, I think leads to a tremendous amount of loneliness, makes it, you know, some of the cultural issues, particularly in Silicon Valley, make it difficult to talk about vulnerable topics to be your authentic self. Um, and within all of the different things that you could do as a CEO, I think the pivot is, is one of the most, if not the most difficult, because so few people are willing to talk about it. Hiring engineers is hard. Having an engineer choose another company over yours it feels personal. Uh, having VCs pass on you feels personal and it's hard. All of that stuff is true. No matter what anyone else says about it, it's true. It's really hard. But there's a lot of people that are willing to talk about that. I can go into a room of CEOs I don't know and complain about VCs right now and they will all agree. But if I go in and try talking about the pivot, I got to tell you, I think in most of the CEOs I've ever talked to, like people get quiet real quick. And it's not because they didn't have pivots. It's just, it's perceived, I think, as a sign of weakness. And um, while the business clearly isn't doing that well, if it's got a pivot. Um, and I think that was, that was what made it so hard that there weren't resources for me to go look up. There weren't, I don't know if there's a first round article about it now. I don't think there was when I looked at, went through it. There wasn't a lot of stuff on TechCrunch about the authentic journey of the pivot. Hey, talk about Slack's pivot. Great, good for them. Show me, show me, a, show me another pivot that didn't immediately turn into a billion dollar company within nine months. Um, and <clears throat> I think uh, that helped to compound the issue because you're trying to lead, you know, the team through this dark room with no direction, and you you can't talk to anyone. So at work, I think. Um, the lack of a opportunity to have a, a, a peer group that I could talk to um, compounded the issue. And when I went home, um, you know, my wife uh, who works at another startup, she, she's the, the chief marketing officer at a company called Coursera. Um, we would talk, but it's just hard for someone who hasn't been through it to understand, honestly, like, to understand that my job one day would be both talking about, you know, the, to the board, the companies, there's something wrong with the company and also getting pulled in to recruit someone to join Circle Up. What do I do there? Do I tell the recruiting manager not to hire anyone? Do I tell the recruit, hey, I, I do believe in our 10 year, there's something here over the next 10 years, but I'm not really sure what, and by the way, we're going through a pivot right now. I don't know. I don't know what the right answer is. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that I did it the right way at all. I, I made a lot of mistakes, but that um, intensified the, the, the pain and the loneliness because it, it felt like at any given time, I was wearing hats that didn't feel like the authentic me, um, either because I didn't feel like I could totally go into as much detail as my wife might need as anyone might need because you can't relay every experience every single day or because I was also responsible for, you know, talking to the press, talking to new recruits, talking and, and selling a vision. Um, and that, that was hard. Yeah. I mean, you bring up a lot of really interesting points there. I, I want to touch on this uh, point that you made about some of the, let's say the mythology of pivots. I mean, if you do go out looking for articles about pivots and examples of pivots, you just find an impenetrable wall of fairy tales. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you can look at the first page of Google even. I, I just looked it up while you were talking. And, and these are some of the, the most respectable business um, uh, publications that, that you could ever be hoped to be focused in, uh, to be featured in, but they're only exclusively focused on the success stories. Right. And, you know, so does, does that then add to 
some of your loneliness in the situation of, of trying to figure out, I need to pivot, oh. but I don't know that my next step is that slack-like success story on the other side of it. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I'll go even deeper than that. I, I wasn't even looking for a roadmap in those articles. I was just looking for feeling language. I wanted a CEO, CEO just to talk about like how hard it was. So I didn't, so that I knew what I was doing wasn't insane, right? Like that, that I wasn't some weirdo that like was experiencing something that I shouldn't be experiencing. I mean, when I've read about the Slack, but we're going to keep mentioning Slack, when I was reading about the Slack of it, I mean, let's just imagine for a second, they had a core business that wasn't working. Someone said our internal communication systems should be the new business. There must have been, even for 10 minutes, someone saying, what the hell? This has nothing to do with our other business. Why is, are we, are we just firing random bullets here? And there's other examples too, but that's the stuff that I want to read about. Once Slack is a clear success, I'm no longer interested in it for that reason, right? For, for, for the reason related to Pivot, I care about the minutes of, you know, did Stuart, did Stuart ever lock himself in a room? How did he decide that the, uh, you know, the communications platform was the right answer and not pivoting to a different type of video game. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> so the lack of information um, externally brought pain, but not so much because there was no playbook, more so because I just wanted to know how it felt for other people. And I remember during that period I met with, I did try actually to meet with a couple CEOs, maybe not necessarily about this. And I kind of like test the waters about, I just meet with Sirius periodically about a variety of different things. Right. Um, and I, I remember kind of testing the waters about a variety of different, or about, about this topic, about the pivot um, without mentioning the pivot. And all I ever got back was, yeah, we're crushing it. We're crushing it. Right. Like from, from the other CEOs about their own companies. And I remember there was three CEOs um, who I won't mention here, who, talked about how they were crushing it. And all three, uh, sorry, two of the three had to close down their business within a year. The third got fired from the business. Um, and the business had, had ironically, a major pivot. Um, and they were all companies that are about our stage, at least doing well in TechCrunch. Um, and I'm sitting there having coffee at Blue Bottle or whatever, and we can't have an authentic discussion about what's really going on. We're both lying. I'm, I'm lying by at least omission. I never said we were crushing, but I'm at least lying by omission. And they're lying by saying that they're crushing it. Um, and I think that that's just a really sad result of the cultural dynamics, at least in this city, if not this industry attack, um, that make it so hard to have some of these difficult conversations. Yeah, I mean, I mean that seems like... Uh... A problem that goes right to the to the core of the nature of the startup ecosystem. I mean, how is it that that we can expect entrepreneurs to be more vulnerable um, when there are really some very real systematic penalties for letting the cat out of the bag if if things aren't going well? I mean, if you're a founder, you're trying to raise money, and the word gets out that you're not doing well. You can't raise money. You can't yep. hire people. You lose the morale of your staff that are getting offered twice as much salary from Facebook and Apple. So exactly. there's a lot of very practical reasons why someone wouldn't be authentic. Um, you know, it, do, do you think that that's an unchangeable uh, aspect of this environment or is there a potential solution there, do you think? You know, I tend to think um, that there's nothing that creates a meaningful pain point that is unchangeable. Um, I just think it might take a long time, to be frank. Um, I think this is a meaningful pain point for the vast majority of CEOs, even if the vast majority of CEOs won't talk about it. Um, or let's not limit it to CEOs. I mean, you know, the head of sales at the company that isn't able to make any sales, like, are they able to talk about that? Um, I think uh, <clears throat> I, I think that this probably occurs over time uh, through some small and some big steps. Um, I think this podcast, what you're doing um, and uh, other, other ones like it that are trying to highlight 
uh, the pivot in this case, just more broadly vulnerable issues, I think helps to shed light on it. Um, I think that the work that some folks are doing related to mental health and trying to highlight mental health issues for, in this case, the CEO role or the founder role um, are steps forward. Um, there's a couple of organizations, one of which is called um, Leaders in Tech, um, uh, which helps to bring together a um, small groups of CEOs who sign up to be vulnerable and authentic with each other. And I'm a, I'm a part of that. Um, we get together once a month and, and have very real conversations. It might be about, you know, a marriage or it might be about investors or the company or whatever. It's a little bit like YPO, but more specifically geared A to tech CEOs, and founders, and B towards um, people that want to opt into these types of discussions. Um, if things like that work, I think what we'll see over time is that leaders, whether they're CEOs or founders or whoever, um, recognize that authentic leadership um, is a type of leadership that uh, commands a tremendous amount of loyalty and following. And to be an authentic leader, I think you need to bring your whole self to that journey. Um, and part of that is talking about the vulnerable uh, pieces of the journey, the things that aren't always easy. There's a, a, a trust equation. Um, if I could geek out for a little bit, um, there's a trust equation. There's a trust equation that we talk about um, here at Circle Up sometimes, which is um, credibility times reliability times authenticity divided by self-reliance. So credibility, meaning um, you say that you can do something, can you, right? Like, my wife is extremely credible on a lot of topics, but if she said that she could you know, do surgery on me, I would not believe her. I would not trust her to do that. Um, reliable, you know, if I had showed up an hour late to this podcast, it probably hurt our trust. And if we kind of drill down on that, it's just related to reliability. Authenticity, that third component, um, is, is what we're talking about here. Being able to bring your whole self, your authentic and vulnerable self to the journey. And that might mean uh, in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the CEO or it might be in front of standing up in front of the board or the team talking about the things that you're scared about. I don't think we see that from most CEOs and most founders today. I'm um, in part because the dynamic you talked about before, it leads to questions like, well, if you're not crushing it, then that means you're not gonna be able to raise money. That means we should go look for another job. We should, we should invest elsewhere, et cetera. As I think um, Silicon Valley and tech more broadly, catch up to this concept that the best leaders have an element of authenticity. Uh, I think as that happens, it will become more of the norm. As it becomes more of the norm, it will be less damning to say something like, actually, there's some things that are going well here, but there's also some things we really need to figure out. Let's talk about those. Because hmm. um, today that conversation is not, uh, I don't think most CEOs feel as safe to have that conversation as I wish they did. And, and what does that add up to in terms of the overall outcome? I mean, what, what can uh, a business or community that, that does embrace and practice this vulnerability and authenticity, what, what can they achieve that, that somebody that doesn't can't achieve? Well, let's, let's start with the, the selfish answers um, and then broaden it from there. So, so selfishly, it's just a lot better for mental health, the mental health of the CEO. Um, and then if you think about if your CEO or founders have better mental health, what does that mean? How does that impact the rest of the organization? How does it impact their ability to relate to you, your, your excitement to go to work, to work with someone who you trust more because they're being more authentic, appropriately authentic, appropriately vulnerable. But how does that impact why you want to show up there? Let's contrast that with some of the stories we've heard over the last two or three years related to WeWork and Uber's old CEO, and a number of others we could probably both mention um, that may not have shown up in as authentic and vulnerable way um, as some of their teammates would have wanted. How did that impact trust for their team? Now, when you don't trust the CEO as much, how does that cascade through the rest of the organization in terms of the trust it breeds or doesn't breed, the mistrust, the mistrust that it breeds? Um, 
I think uh, those are all important issues. Another one that um, I think is important is the mental health of founders, I think, relates directly to uh, perseverance and their willingness to, to be in the seat. One of the most important traits, I think, that exists for a, a CEO and a founder is um, being able to just run through walls um, and, and perseverance. Well, that journey gets a heck of a lot easier um, with, you know, stable mental health. And I think that comes in part by being able to share your journey, not having it be so lonely. Um, so going back to you know the thing that most people in this city care a lot about, which is quite candidly not the mental health of the CEO, a lot of them care about the equity value of the company. The CEO is good. If the founder is good, you want them in their seat for longer to run the business for longer. You want them to be able to build a culture that breeds trust with one another, that people like working at, which by the way, reduces turnover. All of those things contribute back to the equity value of the company. Yeah, it's interesting because mm-hmm. I think that maybe we're all suffering from this, uh, the cult of Steve Jobs in a way, that mm-hmm. there's this mythology that uh, uh, the leader must be always right, they must be stubborn, they must create this reality distortion field. And, and any deviance for that is effectively a show of weakness and, yeah. and a reason for people to run away but rather than run towards. But I guess what that does for, for anybody in a leadership situation is it does then isolate them and then close down the opportunity for, for, for sharing a problem and getting input and, and you know, halving the problem through sharing it, as they say. And, and I think, and I think you might have been also implying this, it's not just impacting the mental health of that founder, it impacts the relationship then with the other people that they work with, right? So whether it's a 10-person company or a 1,000-person company, when you as an employee feel like your CEO doesn't get it because they live in this reality distortion field, think about how that impacts how close you feel to them. I mean, where else in life do you have strong relationships where you feel like the other person just doesn't get it? Mm. Tend to move on from those relationships. And maybe the equity value keeps you there in the case of working in a startup, but gosh, wouldn't you be happier as an employee if you knew that your, your manager or your CEO understood and was trying to get at the key issues rather than just saying everything's great? You mentioned the Steve Jobs um, analogy in the reality distortion field. It reminded me yesterday I saw on Twitter um, a VC say something to the effect, and I won't mention in my name, but something to the effect of, uh, you know, I have begun to believe that uh, really brash uh, CEOs, really brash founders are the best ones. And he was using language that basically implied, you know, the assholes are the ones that I kind of want to work with because if you go back and you talk to some of the early VCs that have backed some of the biggest winners, including Facebook and Uber and WeWork and a number of others, they don't say great things about Mark in the early days. Maybe there are great things now, fine, but in the early days, like he wasn't known as being the you know, best guy. And there's a little bit of a pattern recognition of an N of two, an N of four that leads some of these VCs to say, well, Steve Jobs was really hard to work with, kind of a jerk. Maybe that's the recipe for being successful. I think that's insane. I mean, it's a little bit like if I hired a Stanford engineer, and that Stanford engineer was bad at his or her job. And then I said, we're not going to hire any more Stanford engineers because I had one that was bad. An N of one or an N of two or an N of four. I don't know why we draw that conclusion. I think, I think what ends up happening then is that type that personality type gets glorified. I remember um, when I first started raising money for circle up, I got feedback um, from someone that I trust to not send thank you notes. Um, And uh, someone writes to me, a VC writes to me to purposely not respond for 36 hours. And the basic concept was like, you know, show them that you're too busy for them. Show them that like, you, don't, you don't want to talk to them. I understand the logic, but I think that's illustrative of what happens in the Valley, which is you put on this air, like I'm, I'm too good to be talking to you. You're lucky to be talking to me. And I think, that's, I think that's worse for the relationships that we could have along our respective journeys, which I think would make everybody 
candidly happier. But I think that that's, um, I think there's also a little bit of, um, maybe I'm being naive. Um, my hope is that over the very long term that changes, I understand why it exists today. And I understand the short-term incentives that lead people to talk only about why they're crushing it or how they're crushing it. Yeah. And, and it seems to me this is particularly acute for a CEO because it is a uniquely lonely path because you do have to keep face for yourself, for your family as well, for your leadership team and all of the employees. And keeping that morale is particularly important. I, I totally get that. I wonder if it's also true at other layers of management or other employees within the company as well, particularly if anybody's sticking their neck out over a Mm -hmm. a contrarian opinion they have or an idea for an innovation that kind of disrupts the norm in some way. Once you go down that path, you kind of pin a little bit of your identity to that solution. And if you start to run run into problems, who do you turn to? It becomes quite lonely in a way, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's that's a fantastic point. And you can kind of see in some of these cultures, um, where, you know, it'll come out that the CEO uh, uh, was living in a reality distortion field and uh, was Theranos um, and was was not willing to talk about some of the hard stuff, not willing to talk about some of the problems that they had. Well, how does that impact the people that they hire? Why weren't the, I don't know how many employees that Theranos had, why weren't the thousand other employees that they had you know, doing more to like stop this. Well, I could imagine part of it is fear. Mm. Part of it is, you know, you go to work every day in a culture where the CEO is not willing to talk about some of the hardest stuff. It leads people to think that that's not okay. Um, and I, I have seen that at a number of organizations. There are also some organizations that one way or another have been able to figure out how to generate um new ideas and, and celebrate people that have uh, uh, been, had the courage and capacity to present um, alternative points of view. Um, I don't think we hear enough about that, um, I, but, but there are certainly some cultures out there that have been able to do that. Mm. So now that you are in a place of circle up, the, you have the ability to create that culture and to um, create the processes to give support to people that want to be vulnerable and authentic for the benefit of the company and for themselves. What, what are the, some of the ways that you can do that? And is there anything you've already put in place that we could learn from? Thanks for listening to the Lean Startup Company podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and check back next week for part two of this episode. We look forward to seeing many of you in San Francisco this week at the Lean Startup Conference.